This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And away we go. Welcome to the program. Good to have you aboard. Stumbled over the word program. I was about to say broadcast and then program at the same time, and it came out sort of like program. <laughs> anyway, regardless, uh, on a serious note, listen, continued uh, prayers and uh, well wishes for uh, the, the people of uh, Oklahoma, of course, were devastated uh, by that horrible tornado, the wrath of uh, Mother Nature. And uh, you know, this, that's that time of the year. You just got to keep your eye open for uh, developing storms. You know, it, here we are near you know, the end of May, and we had uh, hail. We've had hail twice in the last couple of weeks up here. And I know the weather is just everywhere. It's just crazy. So, you know, you got to keep your wits about you, especially if you're out on the water. But, uh, you know, especially when you're in Tornado Alley, those people are always sort of walking on eggshells at this time of year. So, again, our, our thoughts and well wishes. Uh, you know, it just, it just makes you uh, want to grab hold of the people close to you and just uh, hug them and kiss them and, and uh, tell them how important they are to you. Uh, speaking of which, the mighty Aphrodite is kicking around here somewhere. She actually came into the building tonight. Is she there? Uh, I might even coax her on the air a little bit later. If, you know, if it wasn't for the mighty Aphrodite, I've told her, and uh, uh, probably pretty obvious, <laughs> anybody that knows me, if it weren't for her, I'd be curled up under a bridge somewhere. So from time to time, I, uh, I bring her in for uh, moral support, and she's my uh, biggest fan and harshest critic. So I, I hope you have a mighty Aphrodite in your life. Uh, the male or female equivalent. Anyway, you, you hear me sort of mention her name as I say goodnight every night. Uh, so maybe, just maybe, I'll coax her on the air. Uh, one of the things that uh, I enjoy talking about most of all is time. Time travel, of course. Uh, but also, you know, as you get older, and I know many of you feel this way, time seems to, uh, the, 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 uh, the passage of time increases. You know that old saying, it's later than you think? It's so true. And, and I get this sense, I don't know, it's a zeitgeist, that things are moving, accelerating towards some sort of an acute angle. 
some culmination, uh, some culminating event. Not sure what it was or what it is, but I think a lot of us feel that way, sort of an unsettled uh, feeling in deep inside of us. The future. Uh, and the future is, as I'm beginning to learn, not just a destination. It's a culmination of events. It's a culmination of variables, who you are, the choices you make, the people you hang with, the choices they make. A butterfly flaps its wing in Vietnam. Uh, the, uh, the, you know, the, the checkout gal at the express aisle smiles and says hello. All of those things can impact on our future. But there is an, a var- there's a variable that we don't talk about as much uh, and its impact on future events, and that is time. And we're going to learn, really, what the nature of time is and how it impacts on future events. And I'm ab- about to welcome a futurist who is a co-founder of something called the Merlin Project. I'm really excited to have him on, uh, on the program. I've, I've, I've listened to him talk on other radio programs. I've read about the Merlin Project. So we're in for a real treat, treat tonight. Uh, the, 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 uh, the Merlin Project, for those of you who aren't aware, it's the first scientifically based forecasting technology that combines celestial equations. We'll find out what those are. Celestial equations with recognized cycles of change to create highly accurate graphical timelines, or what the Merlin Project, the folks at the Merlin Project call time tracks. Timelines or time tracks of future events. Merlin combines the exactness of planetary mathematics with recognized historical cycles to create snapshots of time by using a single frozen moment of time as a starting point. The resulting chronographs, called time tracks, are highly individualized patterns, tracings in time that begin when we are born, or a key genesis event that occurs. These time tracks depict chains of activity that are twofold. External factors, like career matters, where we work or live, and internal factors, health, relationships, emotional concerns. And here to tell us more about time tracks... <clears throat> and the Merlin Project, Paul Gersio is a nationally respected futurist and longtime student of traditional and esoteric predictive systems. His 40 years of research into the uh, psychical, pro, um, sorry, psychical sciences and subsequent collaboration with Dr. George Hart directly resulted in the creation of the Merlin Project. His clients include many prominent business people, politicians, celebrities, and thousands and thousands of uh, uh, listeners and viewers on, uh, on Fox News and talk radio throughout North America. He's been a regular guest on CNN, National Public Radio, and now a great delight to welcome Paul Gersio to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Paul. How are you? Hi, Richard. Good Del- to talk to you. Delight to have you on. Let's, let's uh, discuss the nature of time. We think of time as, well, it, it's sort of this linear construct that we've created to, to, to note the passage of time. But it's, what is time, really? Well, we have constructed methodologies to keep track of time. Um, you know, uh, so many cycles of the moon around the Earth and the Earth around the sun and so on. And we have taken those largely for granted uh, over the centuries. But one of the things that I did starting back in the late 60s was to examine various what we call mystical systems that have developed in virtually every civilization. And I noticed that all of those systems had a common thread. And the common thread was essentially a time-sensitive common thread. 
whether we're talking about you know the North American uh, uh, peoples, the Native Americans peoples, whether we're talking about the you know the Sumerians or the Egyptians or the Mayans, they all came up with systems and symbolism that was essentially connected to time. Uh, in the case of the, the North American peoples, they might you know they might reference it by the appearance of the white buffalo or. Uh, in, in the Middle East, they would keep track of the movements of, of various planets. It's where we got things like astrology from, for instance, which is a nice idea. Um, but unfortunately, uh, over the more modern era, we've dismissed all of that because we concluded that the, these, these earlier peoples were simply superstitious, and they were... Uh, they were attributing things incorrectly, uh, and we now know what some of those are. Uh, we know that the you know ocean tides come in twice a day, and the sun, uh, the Earth orbits the sun uh, once every 365 days, and so on. Moon, moon around the Earth once a month. Um, but in the process of of sort of collating all of that, we we lost one of the more important recognitions of some of these civilizations, and that is that time actually comes in patterns, in organized increments, and that's what they were really notating in all of these superstitions that they had concocted. Uh, we've dismissed a lot of the superstitions and lost track of what they recognized. That is, the time is not random it is in fact organized and that if we had some system for collating all of that for essentially turning all of it into a large kind of clock we would notice uh, that we could actually make predictions uh, in much the same way as for instance Joe from the tribe predicted that you know if they all went down to the water's edge that at a certain time of day the waters would come in and they did and they then made Joe you know shaman of the tribe we, we now know why that happens and we sort of chuckle over the uh, over the earlier people's recognition of it and attempt to describe it as something mystical yeah we recognize seasonal change but we've lost track of what the Mayans certainly knew about and they kept track by by just observing you know, the, the movement of celestial bodies over thousands of, of years. So well, they, they, they sort of took a long-term view, and we're, we're locked into these, like, you know, five-year plans and ten-year increments. <laughs> well, one, one of the things that got lost in the process of all of that is that in attributing these changes that occurred in, in a, in a time-sensitive fashion to celestial objects or some, some such thing, we lost... We lost track of the fact that that there are patterns to time, and that those patterns happen in much long, longer increments than we pay attention to. You're right. We we watch things like uh, 25th anniversaries and Groundhog's Day, and you know, and so on. And we've lost track of the fact that time doesn't come in those increments. Time actually occurs in the more biblical increments. The the seven lean years and seven fat years, for instance, which comes down to us in things like the statute of limitations, which is seven years. Or uh, if you break a mirror, you get seven years of bad luck and, and so on. 
we we don't pay attention to the fact that those increments uh, that there's that there is organized increments of time that actually occur in those increments. Science has discovered, for instance, that uh, cancer is often growing for about seven years before it's detected, and that every seven years we get a complete uh, overhaul uh, on a cellular level. All of the cells in our body are replaced about every seven years. Well, why is that? Why isn't it five or ten or fifteen or some of these base 10 increments that we do pay attention to. Um, uh, and the fact of the matter is that if we, if, we, if we watched increments of time like 7 and 21 and 42 and so on, uh, we would notice that every seven years there's some kind of a uh, repeat of cyclic circumstances. So people who were in your life seven years ago are going to show up in your life seven years later. Or someone or, just like or, them playing the same role. Well, what sometimes happens is you have a new cast of characters playing the old roles. Uh, same, same kind of circumstances, new cast of characters. But the increment to pay attention to is seven. So, for instance, to give you an idea, if you jotted down the following increments and then paid attention to them, uh, nine months, uh, about two years, about seven and a quarter years, about 21 and a half years, about 42 or 3 years, and 84. And you added those increments to events in your life that were significant. So let's say you had an operation when you were 5. Take a look at what happens around 12 or 12 and a half. Take a look at what happens around 24 or 25 or 6. Okay? And surprisingly enough, there are often repercussions that happen at those increments later on that are connected to the original events. All right, Paul, so, got to jump in here. We'll uh, continue on the, along this vein talking about time tracks. Paul Gersio, co-founder of the Merlin Project here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't you go away. Paul Gersio is here, co-founder of the Merlin Project with his high-tech crystal ball explaining uh, nothing less than the nature of time and how that impacts uh, on our future, our collective future, our individual, our personal future. Uh, so, uh, you were, uh, Paul, you were talking about, uh, uh, you know, snapshots. You were talking about yeah. just about a year in time. Uh, uh, seven. No, no, uh, no, not just about a year. Nine months. Nine months. Sorry, nine months. It's nine months, and then about two, two years, years, and then just about and then seven about years. Seven and a quarter. Right. And then about twenty-one and a half, and then about forty-two or three. Like, give me. I, I, well, I was listening to the break. Uh, something occurred to me, and I might just mention it because we would dismiss this as coincidence. But the last time I was originating from a Canadian radio station, not being heard on one, because I've been on coast lots of times, and that's heard from numerous Canadian stations, but actually originating out of, a, out of a, an Ontario station, for that matter, was 43 years ago when I was the overnight man at CKSO up in uh, Sudbury. Ah, yes. And what I didn't tell you, I don't think, is that I had left a Long Island station to go do that at 7.40 a.m. 7.40 a.m. in Rochester, New York. No, in, Lo in Huntington, Long Island. Ah, Huntington. Sorry. Okay. No, I had, I had, actually, I had worked at WHAM in, uh, before, before Huntington. But when I when I left the station in Huntington, I went to a station in uh, Sudbury, 
and uh, I was that was the last time I was on 7:40 a.m. and the last time I was on a Canadian radio station was 43 years ago. There's that increment, and you right. say, "Well, it's just coincidence," and the 7:40 is just coincidence. Well, what 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 is coincidence exactly? What Dr. Hart, my colleague, my physicist colleague, who invented the laser that's used in LASIK eye surgery, if you've had your eyes fixed with uh, LASIK eye surgery, you got the benefit of my colleague's expertise. Um, we don't understand what coincidence actually is. And is it perhaps organized? Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, back in the 90s, uh, in 91, I believe it was, in, uh, in the spring, when they held the Academy Awards, um, one of the movies that was up for the Academy Award and several other major awards that night was Silence of the Lambs. Ah, uh, yes, Anthony Jonathan Hopkins. Demi's movie. Right. Um, and uh, Anthony Hopkins came up to, to receive the, the, the award for Best Actor, and he, he obviously was caught by surprise because he, he got up there and he started babbling um, about how uh, his father would have really enjoyed this because his father never thought he'd ever amount to anything. And then he said, you know, it's interesting, my father died 10 years ago tonight. Hmm. Well, that night happened to be March 30th, 1991, and 10 years before that exactly on that night was the night that Ronald Reagan got shot. March of 1981, that's right. And that, being a numbers guy, I, I thought, gee, what, what was going on 10 years ago tonight? And it just so happened that was the, that was the night of the, of the Reagan assassination attempt. Why do you recall was the the guy who shot Reagan uh, doing that? What oh, I know where you're going with this. What Hinkley, was the reason? Hinkley had this infatuation with, with Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster. He thought he would impress Jodie Foster by killing Reagan. And so I called up Dr. Hart and I said, Jodie Foster is going to win the Best Actress Award. He also, said, how do you know that? And I said, well, Anthony Hopkins father died 10 years ago tonight and that was uh that was the day reagan was shot and reagan was shot because hinkley was trying to impress jody foster and he said no i said yes and an hour later jody foster won the best actress award for silence of the lambs now that's that that's sort of catching up with a coincidence ahead of time. Yeah, normally we connect um, the dots after the and fact. That, and that and that and that almost never happens. Coincidences are always recognized retrospectively. Fortunes have been well, made doing what you did. Excuse me. Fortunes have been made doing what you did. Well, yes, and 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 I've always thought that lucky people, for instance, and and, and highly intuitive ones, uh, that that's not that's not random either. There's something organized about that. One of the things that studies have shown about lucky people is that they're all eccentric and one of the key things that they do and your audience can make a note of this is they make changes in their life when there's no damn good reason to because they're bored they just got a raise they just got a promotion okay they love what they do for work and they pick up and change jobs and all their friends scratch their head and say why did you do that and they can't even give them a good answer and then six months later, when that business they were working for goes belly up, okay, or, or they have a huge layoff and they would have been one of those people laid off, you say, boy, was that lucky. No, it wasn't lucky in the sense that it was random. 
There was something organized about that. Right. When we make changes in our lives, for instance, not under pressure to make them, when they are optional, we make better changes. Was it Voltaire that said, luck is the residue of design? Well, I, that's probably close. You know, um, I, one of the things when, you, when you've been doing it, I've been doing the last almost half a century at this point, because I started getting into this stuff in the late, middle, late 60s, um, conducted a, 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 an interview program with a bunch of stellar people when I was 20, and they were all in their 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, and I had no idea how lucky I was to have assembled that group of people for a radio interview that then eventually, over the next couple of years, uh, became part of what we now know as National Public Radio up here. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, we deal with coincidence as though it were random when, in fact, it isn't. That's not always true, because not everything is coincidental. There's a lot of what you might think of as noise out there, just static stuff. It's like, you know, you might think of other people who are online are there, so if you have a great experience while you're online, they all just showed up so that there would be a line for you to be on, that you could have that experience on. Okay, it's as though those people vanished after that experience happened, because that's the only reason they were there. Okay, um, time seems to work in organized increments that we don't pay attention to, essentially. And if we could create some sort of a mechanism that would collate all of that, uh, we'd have a pretty neat clock because we would then be able to watch these repeating pattern cycles and know exactly when they're going to show up the next time. Okay, and that's essentially what George and I have been doing for the past 25 years. And we originally cooked this thing up for intelligence agencies because we knew going in that they were the only people who'd appreciate knowing when something was going to happen and how big it was going to be and how long it was going to last and not necessarily what it consisted of because they already knew you couldn't do that. So if you could come up with the, the, the when and the where, okay, and the duration, uh, that was nirvana for intelligence agencies. Uh, because they, they'd at least know when to look for something. It's as though you handed them a set of GPS coordinates and said it's going to happen right here, except the coordinates you were giving them were coordinates in the future, time coordinates, time and date and minute and so on. And you're saying it's happening right here. We can't tell you if it's good or bad, but we can tell you that it's happening right there and it's going to be of this size and it's going to have this kind of an impact and uh, it's going to last this length of time, and so on, and do that with an accuracy that when you have enough of these, say, maybe four to six of these moments of time that are related, you can actually pin down where the changes are going to happen in the future um, about eight times out of ten. Right, and again, it's it's you're not you're not being able you're not able to pinpoint is it negative is it positive it's just you're showing there's a lot of activity around this month. Well, and it, it's a little more detailed than that because if you happen to be a good news junkie like the Jodie Foster story, right? Okay, you can then put the pieces together and say, well, it might be kind of like this because the last time this stuff all happened, here's what it produced. 
Right, right. Let's give a, a people a, a, a couple of examples. And I, I want to point out that if you go to richardserrett.com, on the homepage, underneath tonight's show, you'll see the first hour, 11 p.m., The Merlin Project. And uh, just down underneath the bio for our guest tonight, Paul Gersio, you'll see view some of the time tracks discussed on tonight's show. If you click on that, Paul has kindly provided uh, some of these time tracks that we can talk about. And this will really illustrate how... Uh, this works. So let's let's give them an example. Let's talk about, uh, if we could, uh, a, a Tiger Woods. Now well, here's can, ti- Tiger's a good one. I'll tell you who's another good one. Uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about Tiger over the years with, on shows, but some of you haven't spent as much time talking about it, just so that your listeners can go and look this up and get the grin on their face that we got when we looked at it. Uh, t- uh, Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton. Okay. okay. Now, all right. Now Tiger. Uh, Tiger was born, I think, in 1975. I think it was 75. Um, and when we ran his time track, we originally ran it back when he started as a professional back in the late 90s. And then we re-ran it again in, I believe it was 2005. And so if you, if you go to the, the, the time tracks and you look up Tiger Woods, um, you are going to find... Uh, some very interesting activity going on in the years beginning about 2009. Well, in 2008-2009, not only did he he, uh, encounter a number of injuries that that in one case took him out of of the business for a whole year, he tore the ACL in his left knee, uh, and he was playing in one tournament with a broken leg. Um, But the big story was that while he was out practicing playing golf every day for his entire life. He missed out on the, on the girl thing. And so now that he was successful and got all this money and, well, there's all these women around, you know, um, he got involved with a whole bunch of them. And since he was not up to speed on the, on the issues involved in getting caught, he had it all as on a speed dial on, on the cell phone he was carrying around. Okay with his wife, and who looked up this stuff and <laughs> figured out what was going on. Tiger, if you look at his time track beginning in 08, 09, it literally goes nuts for about five years. And uh, anybody who, who pays any attention to the news at all, and especially those of us who are golfers, uh, it's, it's been the story. Okay, Now the big story is, you know, is he back? Okay, that's the big story now. But if you look at that time track, it would have been clear to anyone looking at it, no matter how much they knew about these things, even if they only knew, you know, look for where it gets interesting on the page. Okay? And you'd notice that this 0809 portion of the graphic uh, is a complete complexion change from what had been going on previously. And we ran this thing all the way back to the late, to the late 90s. Uh, so we were looking at a span of time from, let's say, 2000 to 2018 on one page. And what we were looking for was exaggerated changes in the trend line, which, which is created by putting all of these, these celestial clocks together and all of these organized increments of change that every civilization has noticed, uh, like seven and a half years and 22 and so on, and put the, build them all into a large clock that outputs a level of likelihood to be interesting, let's put it that way, 
uh, graphic and shows you where where things are going to get real different from whatever's been going on. So it's not it's not getting good or getting bad. It's getting different, and the graphic tells you where this getting different is going to happen. Uh, when you when you look at that, you'd be able to say, well, something in Tiger Woods' life is going to change drastically about 200809, and it's going to and it's going to be drastically different from that point on for at least the next half a dozen years. And it's totally unlike whatever's been going on over the last, say, eight or ten. And you could say that with a very high degree of precision and be right eight times out of ten. Let's put it that way. And in the case of some of these things, uh, they've, been, they've been accurate to a higher percentage than that. And if you run a series of them, like, for instance, in the case of a Tiger Woods, you take his birthday. You take the day he announced that he was turning professional. You take the first major tournament he won, or uh, the date his father died, or, or, or uh, the date he got married to this blonde from Sweden, uh, Nor- Nor- Norgan. Um, uh, you, you would see on each of those time tracks, at the point in 08-09 where everything was going to hiccup big time, uh, you would see a drastic change showing up you just wouldn't see it represented the same way. You might see the highest mountain peak on the whole page, or you might see the very beginning of a long mountain range, which is actually what's on the time track for his birthday. You might see uh, something that's been going on uh, ending and a whole new set of circumstances coming into play on, say, his his first professional uh, tournament or his announcement date for, for turning pro. Uh, the more of these that you have that you can isolate to the exact starting moment, when you put them together, they all tell us roughly the same story. They show you all where all the big stuff is going to be, and they show it in different ways, but you, if you looked at, say, half a dozen of them, and there's five to seven change points in each 18 years, you would find uh, eight out of ten of all of the same ones on all of those time tracks. All right, Paul, got to jump in here. We'll take a time out. Back on the other side with co-founder of the Merlin Project, Paul Gersio, as we discuss time and the future here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Next week, we'll talk with uh, Adam Gorightly, a uh, self-described crackpot historian. We'll talk about some of the mysterious deaths of some famous comedians, uh, everyone from, uh, of course, Lenny Bruce to George Carlin. And uh, we'll also talk about uh, chemtrails uh, with Ilana Freeland, uh, a contributor to and editor of uh, Paranoia Magazine. That's coming up next week on the program. Right now, Paul Gersio stays with us, co-founder of The Merlin Project, and we're looking at uh, time tracks of some famous uh, some people. We talked about Tiger Woods. You wanted to mention Hillary Clinton. I wanted to finish time. Oh, sorry. Okay. I, I just wanted to mention to you that I, I saw, so Nori's running a dog and pony show. <laughs> well, he's uh, he's coming yeah, up to Trump. I can't apparently. wait. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Um, about Tiger Woods, uh, if you go to our website, 
Now, those of you who are familiar with the Internet, you basically it's just like a large digital online diary where everything gets date, date and time stamped. So if you, if you put it out on the Internet, you can track down when, when it was put out there. So it's a, it's a great place to log in predictions, okay, as a for instance. Hint, hint. Okay, if you go to our website, projectmerlin.com, that's the that's the one of a couple of websites, but that's the primary one. Project Merlin, all one word, no spaces. dot com, and you go to the Time Track Library. Now, there's some interesting stuff on the home page, but if you go to the the Time Track Library, it's one of the tabs that runs down the left side of the of the page. And yes, we know it needs to be updated, but that's okay. Follow me along here. If you punch on the one that says Time Track Library. That'll take you to the Time Trek Library facing page, front page. And if you look on that page, you'll find a, a, a listing of possible things you can look at. There's election-related stuff from, from the U.S. There's also people and events and time twins. There's some tabs on there. Well, if you click on the one that says people, and you scroll all the way down to the end of that, you'll come to Tiger Woods. And you'll notice up in the upper right-hand corner, because these things are all date-stamped, that we issued that in 2005, so, what, eight years ago. And uh, you could actually check to see when that particular file was filed, because there's a record on the server for it. So, the, you know, we, we placed it in there post-2005, um, and you can actually find the date that we did that. Well, the graph that shows all of this change for Tiger Woods was on file eight years ago. And the stuff that happened to Tiger happened, what, five years ago. So at least two or three years before all of that stuff happened, when the trend line on the graph that's posted there wasn't showing much going on, and then in 2008-09 it goes crazy, it's out there registered. So you, can go, you don't have to guess whether we cooked this thing and stuck it in there later. That's about as likely as, as Obama got his birth certificate placed in the 1961 Honolulu Times retrospectively. Not likely. Okay, It's on microfiche. And you can't add stuff to microfiche without recutting the entire reel of microfiche and if you added it in, it's a, it's a photographic change. It's going to be obvious to any, uh, any uh, 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 microscope, electron microscope, you're going to be able to see that, that addition no problem. So it's the same thing. It's a record. It's, an, it's a documented record of something that happened. So now that now, we know how you feel about the birther movement... <laughs> well, the, Let's... The, the, also in ter- just in terms of Hillary... If you go back in history, politically, I mean, she was the sure thing, the, the absolute nominee as far back as probably 2006, which is when we said she's not only not going to be the nominee, but if she is the nominee, she's going to lose. Um, two years before she became the nominee in 2008. Well, if you go and you look at, at, at uh, Hillary Clinton... And I think she's on the home page, the front page yes. of the Time Track Library. If you click on that, what you're going to see is nothing much going on around 2008. Uh, not, 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 this is not a woman going someplace at that point. 
Okay, now, yes, she ran for president, but she lost. Okay, you look at Mitt Romney's, we have him there someplace. Mitt has, Mitt was clearly not going to be anybody important post-2012. Okay, same thing with Sarah Palin. Same thing with uh, Glenn Beck. Okay, who would have known that a couple of years before they, you know, they flamed out? Except it's on the time tracks. And, and same all, thing. And they're all listed. And same thing with Pope Benedict. And the same with Pope Benedict. You can see if you look at Benedict run, which we ran right around the time he got elected. So it was run seven, eight years ago. Yep, 2005. You can see that seven years later, there's this almost duplicate mountain range spike. Okay, exactly the same kind and the same duration as the one that showed up when he got elected. Okay, got to jump in here. We'll take a time out, come back, and we'll find out how Project Merlin is useful for the rest of us. Back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Mighty Aphrodite just uh, came running in with a, uh, her iPhone to show me a, uh, a tweet that uh, we received here. Uh, a tweet from Brad, at Brad's Tweeter. It says, relaxing, listening to... Richard Serra talk about time on the conspiracy show, and then he's got a picture of him lying back, uh, obviously in his rec room, his well-appointed man's cave or rec room, <laughs> and we see his feet. That's all we see: his feet, and then in the distance we see uh, his entertainment center. So um, maybe I'll retweet that, so the rest of the world can see Brad's feet. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, say hello uh, on Twitter at Richard Serrett. Brad Gersio is here from the uh, Merlin Project, Project Merlin, all one word, ProjectMerlin.com, and. Uh, let me just finish what I was saying. Yeah, we're talking about, about, about Hillary. Uh, Hillary. Uh, now, you know, we can say that we said this, but again, it's on the record, and and we did it on show after show after show. It's been time fact, stamped. There was a there was a, there was a uh, prediction site online, uh, uh, a, a marketplace, a prediction marketplace, um, that uh, that had odds in 2006 on Hillary. Of ninety to one odds, you could get ninety to one odds on Hillary being the nominee, um, uh, uh, or not being the nominee. Excuse me. Um, and we were, we knew about the, the the betting site. Just we, we debated even putting some money down on it. We could have gotten back about ninety thousand dollars on a on a on a thousand dollar bet that Hillary wasn't going to be the nominee. Well, the same thing is true in two thousand sixteen. If you look at Hillary's time track. And that's the one where you gave out the address. Okay, if you look there, you'll find Hillary Clinton. Just click on it. Take a look yourself. Look at what's going on in the period of time between about 2014 and 2017. And you'll yeah, notice... There's a spike there. You, well, there's a spike there. But there isn't the kind of continuous activity that you'd have to find in order to find somebody who's going to change their whole life direction. Okay, that's which is what becoming president would be. On the other hand, on that same listing of time tracks that Richard gave you, if you go to that go to that URL and click on it, you'll find both Andrew Cuomo and uh, and uh, Chris Christie. And if you look at their time tracks, and you look at Rand Paul's time track, you'll see what it looks like. When you're going to be a viable candidate, and 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 one of those people is liable to end up being president, uh, Rand Paul's probably going to start a third party, and then it becomes a toss-up between uh, Chris Christie and 
Andrew Cuomo. Now, is that set in concrete? No. But if we ran those time tracks of other people, other pretenders, like Jeb Bush and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, the, the current vice president, uh, the Jim, Joe, Joe Biden, Biden yeah. uh, you don't find that kind of activity. In fact, the difference between, say, Joe Biden's run in 2016 and Andrew Cuomo's run or Christie's run or Rand Paul's run, okay, is like night and day. You, you, you wouldn't have to know anything about these to just put them all down in front of you and say, which, two, which of these people look like they're going to run for president and or win, and which ones don't. We'd all pick the same ones, because it's, it's, it's so dramatically different that you'd have to say, well, wait a minute. If time at that point, if the coordinates of time for that period of time required this kind of stuff to be going on, it isn't going on in these two runs. They're not. Hillary doesn't have that going on, and and Biden doesn't have it have it going on. Right. And uh, 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 I'm trying to think of who else in that list. Jeb Bush doesn't have it going on. Uh, but there are people that do. And, and Rand what, Paul what is we, certainly one of them. What we end up with with these time tracks is a way of sorting things that are otherwise un unable to be sorted okay how you take potential presidential candidates and if you took the whole list of democratic candidates in the american election of 2012 all those people you know the the uh the fellow who ran the pizza company and uh, and uh, uh bachman and uh, and uh, the, the texas governor rick perry and and you compared them all the only one that actually had serious legs to it uh, got thrown out early and, 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 and wasn't able to raise money because he wasn't the Mormon candidate the Mormons wanted. They wanted Mitt Romney. So John Huntsman, who had all the right stuff going on, had to, ta had to back off. Huntsman would have been the, the, the most successful of the Republican candidates, and now knowing what happened, who who wouldn't agree with me? Right, right. Let me let me ask you: uh, when you're doing a time track for a famous individual or a, a political yeah. candidate, I understand you know you, you you've got the the genesis there of their birth date. But let's let let's say you're talking about what's going on in a uh, geopolitically with a country. What's going to happen, for example, in Canada and uh, our economy over the next uh, well, two years? What or you, what you would do, Richard, is, is is pull out a couple of key dates that we can all agree on are of uh, our genesis dates for some large beginning of things. So you know, you'd you'd probably pull out the date when when. Uh, uh, when you know when the Canadian Constitution was signed, or when uh, when it became a Commonwealth country and no longer a, a, a direct province of, of the UK, uh, you'd, you'd look for dates like that, um, and you'd you'd begin with those to see if there's some point in the future or even in the past where there was some convergence of effects and bet you if you looked around the time that that happened you would find things like 
separation efforts going on uh, in in Quebec or, or something. You would find uh, some uh, you know some large political change that was happening or additions to the country or something. You, 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 in other words, one way that you can verify these things is to go back and look at what it says about the past. Now, one of the reasons why we schedule this tonight is because the technology to, to, to generate these pictures, these graphs of time in the future, are now available as an app for smartphones. So if you have a smartphone, you can go and download the software that does this and actually run these things in your hand. You can punch in your own birthday or your wife's or the day you got married or that job that didn't work out or your kids' birthdays or your boss. You can look and see where in time they are, how far away are they from the next big transitional era, for instance. Are they you know, in the middle of one? Are they approaching one or, or, or exiting one? Okay, and how long did it last if it's, if it's just over? And when did it start? And you can start to compare those, those date blocks with actual events in that person's life. I've got and my time tracks. It's eight times out of ten it matches. I've got my time tracks app right here on my iPhone. And uh, so just let's, uh, first of all, if people want to download this app, they go uh, to their, uh, their app button and click on that and then search time tracks, T-I-M-E. Yeah, T-I-M-E-T-R-A-K-S. There's no C, uh, but there's an S, time, T-I-M-E-T-R-A-K-S, with no breaks. And they can look in, in Google Play or in, in the iTunes store, and they look for time tracks and download this thing. And it's, it's very inexpensive. Uh, but what you're going to find when you run these dates is that not only will they tell you what's up around the corner and how far around the corner is, how many months or years it'll take to get here, but you can scan backwards and see where all the big changes were indicated in years that only you know about. You're the only one who can look at that and say, oh, my God, that's exactly the right point where all hell broke loose or where I got that job that, that became my career or where, where I ran into the woman I, I, I later married uh, or the one I had later had an affair with, or whatever it is. Okay, You will find those about eight times out of ten, sometimes a little better than that, occasionally a little worse, but never less than about seven times out of ten, so these are predicting the times of change in your life, the significant times, with a minimum accuracy of 7 out of 10. That's 20 percentage points above guessing. So if it's, okay. uh, if, if, for example, one of, the, um, one of the, on the app, one of the categories is best launch days. How do we use that? Well, that's generic. That's not you. That, that doesn't apply to any particular person. It's generic. It basically says, uh, when are the points along the year going to happen where the event uh, uh, matrix goes up and where if you start something then, you're going to catch a wave like a surfer waiting for the big one. Okay, if, you, if you're out there on the board when the big ones are coming in uh, you have a very, and, you're, and you have some skill, you're going to have a very good chance of catching a very long ride. Okay, the waves are out there. 
it depends on whether you're in, in place to be able to catch a ride on it. The Time Track app tells you when the waves are going to be there so you know when to get your act together. All right. Or you know when to put things in place in your life to take advantage of that enhanced activity. What about okay. your lucky cycle, your luck cycle? How does that Well, work? luck cycle basically is, is individualized. That one is not generic. Uh, that one applies to you. Um, and it basically says, here are the times in, in any given year when your ability to make choices goes up or goes down. And there are times around the year when that's going to happen just naturally. Birthday. 180 days later, 270 days later. Okay. The so for angles, example, so the for seasonal ex- angles. For example, uh, I'm seeing here from from I punched in my month and my date, my birth right. date, and I'm yep. looking at July, and I'm seeing some, uh, you know, July 5th and 6th is kind of pink, 7th, 8th pink, and then dark red from the 9th through to the 15th. What is that yeah, telling you? Know, me? That basically says things like. Don't file back taxes. Don't get any elective surgery done. Uh, don't make any big investments. Don't replace something that broke then because you're going to buy something else that's going to break. Okay, that's, those are the times to avoid and sort of keep a low profile. All right, and then into September, light green around the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and then dark green from the 9th right. to the 15th. Exactly the reverse. Uh, that's when you least need to, to buy something new that does a particular thing because the thing you have is working fine. So you go out and buy one, you get a great price, and then the thing that you've been relying on breaks. And you say, oh, how fortunate it was that I went out and bought another one of these for much less money uh, just in case something happens. All right. That's the difference between... You know, I mean, I've had people tell, who were taught that thing 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when, I, when they first saw me. And I'm told by clients that that is the, the thing that they found that works the most, most of the time. And they can run it, they can figure it out for themselves. Okay, I got to jump. Their kids, their boss. I got to jump in here, Paul. We're out of time. And know when to change. Let's, let's do it again soon. Paul Garcio, The Merlin Project. Give us the website quickly one more time. It's projectmerlin.com and time tracks on the, on the smartphone app. Thanks so much, Paul. Talk again You're soon. You're welcome. Take good care. Bye-bye. Follow the show, richardserrett.com.
From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, welcome to the program. Good to have you aboard. Tim Spreen on the other side of the glass. Your concierge. If you speak to him on the phone, be kind. How many Red Bulls so far? None? You're kicking the hat? Green tea. Wait a second. What's going on? With are you? Is this a new chapter in your life? You're turning over a new page? No. Oh. Okay, because you're like normally, I don't think I've ever seen you uh, without a Red Bull in your hand. Not that I'm doing a commercial for Red Bull, but you would be the a great, <laughs> a great spokesperson for uh, Red Bull. Wow, Tim Spreen has given up Red Bull. Uh, the Blue Jays, who were supposed to be like you know uh, runaway winners of the World Series this year, are languishing in the basement. What's going? on? The world is upside down, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know what to tell you. Anyway, I'll let let Tim get back to work because he's frantically trying to reach our two guests on the phone. And we've got a good one for you over the next hour. We're going to talk about alien abduction. And uh, one of the – we've got two uh, women about to join us. Kathleen Martin uh, works full-time as an author, an alien abduction researcher, and lecturer with more than 23 years' experience in the field and is the niece – this is cool. She's the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. Who are Betty and Barney Hill, you say? Well, they are the first abductees whose story really stirred worldwide interest back in the early 60s. The Betty and Barney Hill case is just, it's right up there in the pantheon sort of 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 UFO ET research. It's sort of the alien abduction equivalent to, it's like the Roswell of the alien abduction world. Uh, So Kathleen Martin is standing by. uh, And also, Denise Stoner. Now, she's another veteran in the uh, alien abduction field as well. She spent more than 21 years researching the alien abduction phenomenon, documenting the physical and psychological impact of abduction on experiencers and working one-on-one with abductees. For many years, she's hosted uh, private meetings for groups of abductees. She's been lecturing on the alien abduction phenomenon and appearing on numerous radio shows And she's slated to appear on PBS TV later this year. She lives near Orlando, Florida, as does Kathleen Martin. And it's a delight to have both Kathleen Martin and Denise Stoner here on The Conspiracy Show. Hello. 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 Hi to you both. Thanks for having us. And uh, congratulations on uh, your, your book, The Alien Abduction Files, the most startling cases of human alien contact ever reported. Now, Kathleen, if I could start with you. Uh, your aunt and uncle, of course, Betty and Barney Hill. This is, uh, as I say, this is the, the case that everyone, this is sort of ground zero when, we, when people talk about alien abduction cases. Although, you know, you could go all the way back to, to the Bible probably, to the first alien abduction case, suppose, uh, possibly, if you talk about Ezekiel. Uh, but what did your aunt and uncle, I mean, how well did you know them uh, growing up? I knew Betty and Barney very, very well. Uh, They lived 20 miles from my childhood home. Betty was my mother's older sister. Uh, My grandparents lived across the street from me, and Betty and Barney visited us uh, once or twice a week. Uh, We we were a close-knit family and always enjoyed each other's company. I heard about their uh, UFO story the day that they arrived home after having a close encounter in New Hampshire's White Mountains, 
Betty had called my mother because she was concerned that the UFO had covered over their car so close that um, they might have been exposed to uh, radioactivity, and she wanted to know what they should do. And we had a neighbor who was a, a physicist, and my mother offered to call him for his advice. And within a couple of days, the whole family went to Betty's and Barney's house. We heard the stories with our own ears in person, saw the spots on the trunk of the car that uh, Betty had discovered when she took a compass out at the suggestion of this physicist neighbor of mine, and uh, the compass needle would spin and spin, indicating that there was an, uh, a magnetic field uh, around the trunk of that car. And this was a spot where Betty and Barney recalled that the craft seemed to be emitting some kind of beeping or buzzing sound uh, as it's the these waves or whatever they were, was striking the trunk of their vehicle and causing the vehicle to vibrate and for this tingling sensation to pass through Betty's and Barney's bodies. Almost immediately after this occurred, they simply lost track of time. And the next memory they had is of becoming aware of the fact that they were 35 miles down the road with very little memory of what had happened in the interim. They remembered that a, uh, a fiery orb was uh, in front of them, silhouetted in the road. It was moving, but they were not moving. And they also remembered a roadblock. They didn't know where or when that occurred. They were startled awake by the second series of buzzing sounds on the trunk of the car, and then they headed south to their home, arriving a couple of hours later than anticipated. Betty's dress was torn in several locations. The tops of Barney's shoes were scraped. There was no prosaic explanation for this. The binocular strap that Barney had used to look up at this craft to observe the non-humans on board it uh, was also severed cleanly and their watches had stopped running and never ran again. Obviously, you know, we could, we could do a, a five-hour show on just the, the Betty and Barney Hill case, and, and um, you know, it's been so well-documented over the years. Uh, but I, 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 before I welcome Denise Stoner to the program, I just I wanted, to, Kathleen, to ask you, uh, not that I'm trying to, you know, sort of in a sneaky fashion find out how old you are, but, you know, we're talking about the early 60s here. Um, so, I mean, this must have had an incredible impact on your young mind and just thrown you for a loop. I mean, never mind what happened to Betty and Barney Hill. As an impressionable young uh, a girl... Um, yes, I was 13 years old when this occurred, and it was startling uh, and also extremely interesting to me. So was the die cast, did, did, did that cement it for you? This is what I'm going to research? Uh, I just became so curious over it as investigators investigated the case and and it unfolded, and then Betty and Barney underwent separate hypnosis sessions with Dr. Benjamin Simon in mm -hmm. Boston over a sure. six-month period. I was very curious about the information that was revealed through hypnosis, so I followed this case throughout my life. And it, uh, I had a professional career, and it was about 1988 when I decided that I wanted to research and investigate this for myself, and my Aunt Betty agreed 
to open up her files to me. And over the next 14 years or so, she turned over uh, about 40 years of investigation files with all the original reports, letters to and from scientists, the hypnosis tapes. There was a wealth of information that I was able to use uh, for my first book, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, with nuclear physicist and um, resident of Canada, Stanton T. Friedman. Yes, yes, of course. Kathleen Marden and Denise Stoner are with us, and the book is The Alien Abduction Files, the most startling cases of human-alien contact ever reported. Over to Denise. Denise, how did you hook up with, uh, with Kathleen uh, and, and, and come together for this venture? Well, I had read uh, about Kathleen and her, her books, of course, and I was always very cautious about who I told what to and who I talked to about certain things. And I had begun to email her a little bit back and forth. And um, then she came down to speak. And we met um, at a certain point, And I invited her to lunch and discovered she had moved to Florida. So when she came to lunch, we started talking and by accident discovered we had both lived in Colorado at the same time, but didn't know it. And we lived in different towns, but only uh, a few miles apart and began to discuss the area and so forth and so on and, and just the synchronicity of the whole thing. And I thought, I wonder, I feel comfortable, should I begin to mention some of the things that happened to me. So I did. I tested the waters, and uh, she questioned me, as she should have. And then once I, I began to tell her of this one experience and that I had lost all the tapes and all the information and documentation that a, a doctor in Colorado had had on me, she offered to do the hypnosis work again to see if we could recover what I had lost. So Tom, tell and, me about your, your, your missing time uh, episode. Well, my husband and I were in Colorado, and we went often to a campsite that we kept a, a little mobile home on, as did my parents. We lived in Denver. They lived in Colorado Springs. And we went as many weekends as we could in the summer and when the weather was fairly clear in the winter. And this one summer in August 1982, we decided we were going to spend a long weekend. And we both worked, so we got off work a little early. We were packing the vehicle and uh, left at about 5 p.m. We were pretty tight on our timing because my parents were waiting on the other end for us. My mom was going to cook dinner and have it ready because they would arrive about an hour ahead of us and have a campfire ready to start for the evening so we could just relax when we get there. So <clears throat> we left town. There was quite a bit of traffic to begin with, everybody wanting to leave town for the weekend. And we reached an area that was clear of traffic and headed up what was called Kenosha Pass. And it was a, it was a mountain pass that when you reached the peak of it, you could look down over a beautiful glacier valley and that was sunlight, gorgeous sunlight that you could see the whole valley ahead of you. And below that was a little town called Jefferson, just at the foot of that pass. So 
so I was looking around. My husband and I were talking. Our daughter was asleep in the back seat, and the little dog and our little dog in the front seat with us. So, as we passed down, well, we got out of the car first. There's a little stop at the top of Kenosha. You can get out, stretch your legs. We did that, and then stayed no longer than five to ten minutes because, again, our timing. And we had a fairly new car, but we'd ha- we thought we might be having some trouble with some mileage. So my husband had set the odometer, the trip meter. And uh, we checked that again. It was fine. Headed down Kenosha Pass. And I noticed, as I looked out over the valley, two very bright lights. Really, really bright. So I just studied them and thought, hmm, some kind of anomaly? Is the sun reflecting on something? Although I knew that valley very well. There were no buildings. It was just vacant, open, high desert. Denise, I'm just going to sneak in here and uh, we'll uh, take a time out. We'll come back on the other side, continue to talk with Denise Stoner and Kathleen Martin, authors of The Alien Abduction Files, the most startling cases of human-alien contact ever reported here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Kathleen Marden and Denise Stoner uh, stay with us as we discuss their book, The Alien Abduction Files, The Most Startling Cases of Human-Alien Contact Ever Reported. Kathleen Marden, uh, the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, of course, the first abductees whose story stirred worldwide interest. And uh, Denise uh, has spent 21 years researching the alien abduction phenomenon and um, is herself a... uh, can I call you a victim of lifetime abductions, Denise? <laughs> well, I don't like the word victim because I, I've always been brought back, and I, I just don't know how to, how to call it. I really don't. I'm not sure. Let's not put a name to it yet. <laughs> All right. All right. But uh, let, 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 if you could just – I wish we had – I could drill down for three hours and talk about you with this, and I, I only have a short time. So if I could get you just to, uh, to give us maybe the thumbnail sketch of, okay. of what happened. Uh, sure. As we discuss your 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 incident, your time uh, your missing time in Colorado. All right. Well, when we got to the base of the pass uh, and started across the Glacier Valley, the lights ended up over the top of the car briefly, without going into any other detail. Over the top of the car, I looked at my husband. He was non-communicado. He wasn't responding to anything I said. Staring straight ahead hands over the steering wheel, I, I could get no response. And then I realized that those lights attached to something, a large object, were over the car. I felt the tires scraping sideways, and the car was leaving the road out of control. We had no control. And then the car lifted over snow barriers that were on the side of the road and went right out into the high desert. I soon realized the car was going to land. And when it did and settled down, our memories were gone until... We ended up on another pass, the one we were trying to reach for, and it was then pitch dark. should have still been daylight. Hours had passed, and we were terrified, disoriented, very fearful. The odometer had not changed, and it should have marked the time through that valley. We stopped. We discussed it for a minute, could come to no conclusions, drove on the seven to nine miles. We had to go to our campsite. My parents were waiting for us, ready to walk to the ranch house to call, because there were no cell phones in 1982, to call fire departments, police, hospitals. And then my my dad was going to leave to come and look for us on the one road that we would have traveled, off the side of the mountain in in a ditch. He didn't know where. And when they asked us where we had been, our response was, we don't know. 
but we had been missing for over three hours. Three hours, my God. And this was mm. – is was much of this incident um, brought back to you through um, a regression uh, session or how did this information well, come Well, yes. I, I had been having flashes of faces and big eyes and some – uh, something physical being done to me, and I'd had all these things that needed to be all attached like a puzzle piece. And so I had the hypnosis done and hooked it all together, and it was very frightening what had been done. And even though I kind of knew in my mind, you know, consciously, it, it wouldn't hook together when I was awake. So pretty soon after the hypnosis, it definitely was. All the pictures came together like they should. Uh, as we've learned, uh, uh, these abductions tend to be generational. Let me, let me go back to Kathleen for a moment. Kathleen, uh, as a niece of Betty and Barney Hill, uh, when you began to research this, did you find that Betty and Barney Hill were not the only ones in the family to experience this? Uh, yes, I, I did find that. The other family members wish to remain anonymous, but there are several members of the family who have indicated to me that they suspect they might have been taken as well. And uh, when you got to know Denise and, and became familiar with, with her uh, abductions, did that, did that begin... Uh, I mean, what what new information did, did that bring to you, uh, Denise's experiences, or did it merely confirm what you had sort of begun to assemble on, on your own? Well, I had been researching uh, alien abduction uh, on nearly a full-time basis for uh, close to 22 years at that point. So I had a good working knowledge of alien abduction. And the statements that Denise made under hypnosis about her onboard experience was consistent with what uh, information that I had received from others. And for you, Denise, these fleeting images that you had, uh, faces of aliens, there's a sketch in the book of kind of an insect, insectoid-type creature. Uh, yeah. Were all of your experiences with this type of, of, uh, of alien, the insect? No. No. I called that one the doctor. He did all the medical procedures on me, but there was a tall gray over five feet tall that came for me that time and all the other times that I knew about in my life. And he's just one that's there. I don't know if he's ageless and timeless, but he's the one that comes for me and escorts me to whatever craft, and then the insectoid individual is there. And uh, you've had uh, uh, X-rays and CAT scans and, 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 and various medical procedures. Not, not, I'm not talking about the ones performed aboard a craft, but down here. Uh, yes. What have they? What have they found? Uh, is there anything uh, different about you neurologically, or, or how is your health? Well, I've had some very odd health things. My, I have a genetic, but not through my parents and my heritage, blood disorder that can't be diagnosed. And it's been very, very odd. One minute my blood will clot. If they try to do anything too much about that, I, I will bleed out, and I've required to be given blood. 
have to be very, very careful what they're doing. They're not sure how to balance it. They're, they just don't know what they're doing. This has been since 1969. Um, I have quite a few odd things. I've, I have chronic fatigue, and that I've been taking care of pretty much myself. I have an odd sleep disorder, and I've come through with something that's possible. I, I received walking into the core of the ship, and Kathleen has that on video, my reaction to that. And I have that actually physically, and that is undiagnosed. No one knows what it is. It has to do with muscles and nerves reacting in a strange way. Um, and I react oddly when I'm put in an MRI machine. I may not be able to, to enter one again. Uh, Kathleen, these strange undiagnosed <clears throat> illnesses, uh, is this consistent with the alien abduction I don't know what to call them. I mean, if it happened to me, I, I would incline to consider myself a victim. But um, I don't know, what, you know, the, what terminology. But the, the alien abduction cases, these undiagnosed illnesses, is that consistent? Is that a commonality? Well, I have to say to you that uh, Denise and I collaborated together on a UFO abduction experience or survey. It was a research project that we conducted over a one-year period. There were 50 experiencers and a 25-person control group that participated in the study. And what we discovered is that 38% uh, of the experiencers have a formal medical diagnosis of chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome, although less than 1% of, of the general population has that uh, same diagnosis. And also, uh, there's a very high rate of incidence of migraine headaches among abduction experiencers, where it is about 10 to 11 percent among the general population. So there is definitely an elevated rate of certain disorders among experiencers. Uh, that the, one of the things that you, you, you drill down on in the book is um, details of alien experimental procedures. What have you, the two of you, learned uh, about what actually goes on aboard these craft in terms of, of whatever they're doing to experiencers, these aliens? What, what, what types of experimental procedures do you, you believe are being performed? Well, for me, I would have to say from people that I've worked with and for myself that in the beginning, if you're taken as a child, which the majority of people are, it has something to do with they're teaching you something. What that is, we can't unlock yet. We don't know when it will. Something happens to restrict you from disclosing what you have learned in the majority of cases. Uh, we don't know what the key is yet. We're working on that. Second, I think that the majority of females are being used as breeders in different shapes and forms, and there's a lot of medical procedure involved in that. And third, if you continue to be taken, which I am, I had an experience in February, I, I think, again, that we're being used for something because they're still taking skin punctures, they're still scraping skin, they're still doing things that indicate they're needing parts of our genetic makeup. Do you have anything to add to that, Kathleen? Uh, yes. Many, many people report that s tissue samples are taken and that uh, emotional experiments are done 
in order to uh, evoke a strong emotional response to a certain uh, image, perhaps on a screen or a holographic image. They seem to be very interested in the range of human emotions. I'm curious about, uh, you know, I, again, I use the term uh, victim, and, and that's one, obviously, Denise, you're not comfortable with, and, and Kathleen, you use the term experiencers. But here we're talking about forcible confinement. We're talking about abduction, forcible confinement, being experimented on, uh, being, you know, prodded and, and poked and, and, and things, you know, implanted possibly. Um, this, to me, sounds like a nightmare, uh, and, and I... I have limited experience in, in, in dealing with abductees. I've, I've spoken with maybe a dozen, a dozen and a half over the years, who I think are, are credible. Uh, they are very hesitant to talk about it. Their lives, in many, in many of those cases, were just ruined. Um, and yet, in, in, in one of the things that you talk about in the book are the, are the benefits of living life as an abduction experiencer. Let me let me start with Denise. I, I just I find that incredibly interesting that, that there would be benefits of living life as an alien abduction experiencer. Well, I believe that in my case, I, I spent three days in in deep study of myself, my mind, my beliefs, the the way that I lived my life, and what did I want to do with that because I was an experiencer, and it opened my mind to the fact that there were so many things out there that I hadn't learned, wasn't willing to accept or even think about or consider about the human being, the world, the universe, and and that was given to me as a gift, I believe, um, because I didn't want to restrict myself anymore to the possibilities of, of what we have here. So I have to say that for that reason, I don't consider myself a victim. And I can't call this uh, victimization because what if they're doing this for our own good? At, at what point we might discover the reason and discover that it's a good thing? I don't know, but I don't want to cancel out the fact that this might occur in the future. So I'm not going to call it that. I'm an experiencer, and I'm going to remain that until we discover the reason for their being here. Wow, I have to say, Denise, you're a very uh, sort of forgiving, patient, uh, understanding woman. I mean, I think uh, I can't imagine, you know, no one can imagine uh, what you've been through. Uh, but if it were happen- to happen to me, I-, I would just be just so bloody angry. I, I-, I can't imagine uh, well, I've, I've been angry. I don't sleep at night, not until after 4 a.m. in the morning. I have a little cocoon built in the bed thinking that's going to help matters <laughs> if I don't want to be taken. There are a lot of fear factors, absolutely, but you just kind of deal with it. And once that element of fear is gone and, and you arrange your sleeping pattern around what you're dealing with, then that's about it. You, you take the rest in stride if you can, and if you don't, you seek out a support system or support group like I give. Uh, uh, Kathleen, in, in the abduction experiencers that, that you've uh, spoken with, do they, do they 
share Denise's views. Uh, they, they, they look at this as, uh, you know, they look at the upside. They, they try to focus on the positives. Or uh, do you meet people that have been destroyed by this experience? Many, many people uh, view themselves as victims and feel that their lives have been profoundly affected in a negative way by these experiences that they didn't ask for and don't want. But there is a movement uh, for experiencers to stop viewing themselves as victims and to become proactive and to show strength in order to overcome this sense of victimization and to move on productively with their lives, recognizing that this is something that they've had to endure. It hasn't necessarily been positive, but to live life as a victim is not healthy either. All right, we'll come back and continue our conversation with Kathleen Martin, Denise Stoner, The Alien Abduction Files, the most startling cases of human-alien contact ever reported, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. There was a, a Roper poll uh, commissioned by um, uh, Bud Hopkins, John Mack, and I believe... Um, David Jacobs from uh, yes from uh, Temple University I, I, at the time I believe and uh, which showed nearly four million Americans have had certain indicator quote unquote experiences and therefore had probably been abducted by aliens. Uh, we are discussing uh, alien abductions with Kathleen Martin and Denise Stoner, author of the Alien Abduction Files. First of all, uh, uh, Kathleen, that poll uh, based on your research. Uh, do, do those numbers make sense? Four million Americans may or have probably been abducted by aliens. I suspect that the number is less than that. Two of the questions on that poll uh, were of characteristics that are common across the general population. So I'm not sure about the validity of that poll. But when Denise and I participated in our UFO abduction experiencer study, uh, we discovered that it took us an entire year to find 50 experiencers with memories that they could share with us as part of this. And uh, it was widely uh, advertised in uh, magazines and on websites and on radio shows, uh, and, uh, and still it took a, a considerable length of time in order to find only 50 individuals. Well, let's say, for example, it's not 4 million. Let's say it's 400,000. I mean, that's still, uh, you know, that's more people that have seen an unassisted triple play or have seen wolves being born in the wild. I mean, that's a, that's a significant uh, a, a number. And so people might be left with saying, okay, so let's say 400,000 people have been abducted. Where is you know, the tangible uh, evidence. Where where are the cases where someone has been abducted in broad daylight in a public place where there are, you know, corroborating witnesses and so forth? Well, it appears that the, uh, the people who are doing the abducting uh, are nocturnal, and this occurs at night. So, uh, you know, Denise will say that she has had some experiences during the daytime, but generally that is not as common as at nighttime. There are individuals who have observed uh, 
these UFOs up close. People are missing from their natural environment. People are returned uh, wearing someone else's clothing. They might even be returned to the wrong home. Uh, there, and in the case of Betty and Barney Hill, there was considerable evidence, including uh, the pink powdery substance that grew on Betty's dress that has been analyzed in five separate laboratories. Uh, also, symbols that she observed on the craft and sketched uh, for me in the year 2000 from memory uh, were remarkably symbol, uh, similar to symbols that had been sketched by Bud Hopkins experiencers dating back to 1975. They had been kept in locked files and uh, were not publicly known, yet they were nearly identical. There's also Betty's star map. Uh, there is a weight of evidence that suggests that this is true and real. And uh, Denise, uh, uh, Kathleen mentioned you've had some experiences in the daylight hours. Can you share some of those mm-hmm. with us? Well, I, the, um, <clears throat> it was daylight when I was taken with my husband. Sunlight shining all across the valley. And I was taken in Florida with my husband on a scuba diving trip. It was early morning and the sun was up and we were driving to our dive site. Uh, we we had become cave divers, and that's perhaps one of the reasons where I can take everything in, in my stride because cave diving is something that I call an exercise in controlled panic. And so uh, in order to do that, you really have to be a self-preserver and able to save yourself. But here we were driving up in North Florida on farmland. The only way to find these sinkholes is to know which far, farmer's property to turn left on and what fence and what tree. And we had spotted these objects sitting on the ground, uh, and I pointed them out, and then my husband looked, and he saw them. And then before we could do anything about it, the next thing we knew, we were on another road in an area we didn't recognize, had to figure out where we were, how to get back to where we were going to go, how far away we were, And then Kathleen had to help us recover our memory on this one because, again, we were frightened. We we found our way back. We did our dive because we were gone for the weekend, and we had both seen the same entity that put me back in the truck. Okay, i got to jump in here again. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, Kathleen Martin and Denise Stoner, The Alien Abduction Files. Coming up in the uh, weeks ahead on The Conspiracy Show, crackpot historian Adam Go-Rightly will uh, be here to talk about uh, the mysterious circumstances surrounding some of the deaths of famous comedians, people like George Carlin, of course, Lenny Bruce. Uh, Ilana Freeland, who is a, uh, an editor with Paranoia Magazine, will be here. Uh, she's working on a, a new a major book on chemtrails. And uh, Karen Hudes is a whistleblower with the World Bank. She's uh, in the legal department. I believe she's a senior legal counsel working some 20 years with the World Bank, uh, has become a whistleblower, trying to bring corruption in the World Bank to, uh, you know, to our attention, and was uh, essentially arrested for her, uh, her efforts with, uh, and charged with unlawful entry but she was charged, now keep in mind, unlawful entry is not a federal offense, but she was charged 
and arraigned by the U.S. Department of Justice, and she's serving possible jail time for this. Uh, but she wants to, the world to know that this she's being essentially set up because she's trying to bring, again, these corruption charges to our attention. Karen Hudes from the uh, World Bank, and this will be a Canadian exclusive. All right, back to our conversation with Kathleen Marden and Denise Stoner, the alien abduction files. And, uh, uh, Denise, I, I'm, I'm sorry I had to interrupt. I mean, these are right. very important uh, uh, stories and such a, a, a huge part of your life, and I realize it must be difficult to, to you know, to have them sort of... Uh, uh, dealt with in such a an abrupt, short manner, but unfortunately, we have time constraints here. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I want to get back to the um, the the Martin Stoner study on on commonalities among abduction experiencers. Uh, if I could get uh, uh, you, Kathleen, let's just there may be some people out there who suspect, maybe not having gone through some sort of a regression uh, therapy. Uh, who suspect that they may be uh, alien abduction experiencers. Can we go through some of the commonalities, some of the telltale signs that, in fact, one might have been abducted? Certainly. Uh, We asked uh, many, many questions. There were 45 in all. And 88% stated that their abduction memories were consciously recalled. Only 56% through dreams and 36% through hypnosis and 16% by other means or flashbacks, and there, there may have been multiple combinations there. 67% said that they consciously recalled, not with hypnosis, the observation of an unconventional craft at less than 1,000 feet prior to abduction. Uh, 56% stated that they consciously recalled the observation of non-human entities immediately prior to an abduction while they were outside their home. indicated that they were not alone when they were taken. 62% of the witnesses had conscious recall of at least part of their experience. 43% stated that the witnesses reported the observation of a UFO near their house, their vehicle, their tent, uh, prior to their abduction. And 58% stated that they were aware of having been examined aboard a craft. So you can see there is quite a large percentage of experiencers that have conscious, continuous recall of these experiences. Something that we were really surprised to learn, or at least I was, uh, is that uh, 88% of those who participated in the study as experiencers said that there had been paranormal activity in their homes immediately following an experience, and that this paranormal activity included poltergeist activity where something might fly off a shelf across the room, maybe a photograph would lift up off a wall and fly across a room, or there might be uh, light orbs floating through the air in the home. So this was very, very interesting to me. There was also a significant percentage that stated that they had developed new intuitive abilities or psychic abilities after an experience. The uh, the presence of uh, of greys. Now, is this consistent throughout time? I mean, did Betty and Barney did they describe greys as well? Yes, they did describe greys. They were. 
uh, slightly different than the stereotypical image of the, the little three-and-a-half-foot grays with the huge heads and, and black eyes. But, in fact, Betty did keep this a secret that she and Barney had observed these smaller figures on board the craft, that they had perfectly round heads. Uh, also, the taller figures were about five feet tall. They were hairless. They had these large eyes. They remembered that uh, they reminded them of cats' eyes. So uh, they glistened uh, in the darkness. They uh, seemed to have a large pupil, but they remembered some yellow in the, uh, these eyes, too. Today we hear about eyes that are perfectly black. So I don't know if this was a different variety of grays or not, but the physical description is very, very similar from what I hear from uh, hundreds of other individuals today. So we have the grays. We have the, uh, the insectoids. Uh, um, Denise, you described the, uh, the insect-type uh, uh, ET as being the doctor. This was the one performing the, the medical... Yeah, the medical procedure. What else? We have so we have the insectoids. We have the grays. I mean, Betty and Barney Hill. Did uh, uh, they not also mention what appeared to be Nazi officers in uniform aboard this craft? Well, that's really not true. It's not true. Okay, that was not part of Barney's conscious recall at all. He had stated that they moved with the precision of military officers, and uh, then under hypnosis. Dr. Simon was a psychoanalyst, and he was doing hypnoanalysis with Barney. So whenever Barney described anything that he recalled from the night of this close encounter and abduction, Dr. Simon was asking him to bring in information from his past that reminded him of this, uh, the level of intensity of fear that he was experiencing. So as Barney looked into this craft, the level of intensity of fear reminded him of being a soldier during World War II and observing a Nazi officer. It was never part of his conscious continuous recall. He always stated that he had observed non-humans dressed in shiny black uniforms. Well, thank you for that clarification. So how many do we have a handle based on your research and based on your personal experiences? Do we have a handle on how many different, I don't know, species or ET civilizations might be involved in this abduction phenomena? Well, there's some controversy about this, but the most prevalent forms of ETs that people uh, report are the greys, the insectoids, the reptilians. They observe hybrids. Uh, aboard these craft that seem to be a combination of humans and and greys, and also a Nordic type of being. Uh, There are a far smaller percentage of reports about tall greys, I mean tall whites, tall goldens, um, blue beings, uh, hirsute beings, but this is uh, a very tiny percentage of the reports. Yes, that's very small. And for you, Denise, it's, it's been primarily the, the greys and the insectoids? Yes, yeah, so two sizes and types of greys. The smaller greys are, I call them the soldiers, and they don't communicate at all and don't appear to move 
almost like robots, uh, or I would guess, and it's just a guess, unless they're ordered to. And did you get any sense of, uh, from the insect, uh, the insect creature, uh, any sense of, of, of empathy or understanding, or was it cold, calculating, was it benevolent, malevolent? I had a highly, highly intelligent being, and I just felt it. I don't know if that came across from him, but also a look that he gave me, a questioning look, almost asking me, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? I wish there was a way that I could get across to you what I'm thinking. It was that, just a tip of the head and a look in the eyes that I felt some sort of emotion. And I'm guessing, this is just a guess, but there was something there. Have you been able to piece together, uh, uh, Kathleen, what, what you think the the alien agenda is? Uh, it, 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 can it be reduced to an alien agenda, or, or is it multifaceted? It's very difficult to piece this together, and there's been a lot of speculation uh, based upon some information that has been given to us by experiencers, uh, ranging from the idea that they are here to move humans uh, along on an evolutionary scale by some to the idea that they uh, are only overseers and are watching us evolve and have no uh, intention of participating in our development to others who have stated that perhaps they are here uh, to populate the earth and are raising these hybrid beings that will someday take over the earth. So there are are a variety of uh, different hypotheses about the alien agenda, but there's no general consensus. We just have a a couple of minutes here. Uh, For those people listening who find this, you know, just difficult to wrap their head around, and, and, and I think most of us would probably you know, want to look the other way and say, this can't be happening. Uh, what evidence would you offer that this, this phenomenon is real? Denise, uh, maybe you can start first. Uh, yes. First of all, we've discovered that I'm reacting to the electrical field in a trimeter. We never had that occur before. It's My body is reacting. We've been able to trace an implant in my arm, both of us, so I have a witness, traveled from my elbow to my wrist and then disappeared. I have marks on my body. I have things that show up on the left side of my brain. Uh, and a neurologist stated nobody would know what those were. Uh, all kinds of things as evidence. People waiting for me to show up, and I didn't. Uh, there are witnesses, people with me when I've been taken. So you just have to uh, document and be very careful to take pictures if you can. There's evidence out there, and the more we can collect, the better we are. Kathleen, very quickly, to you, some evidence? Well, we have to look at these people's personalities and backgrounds as well, and uh, many individuals who report this are credible individuals who are respected in the community. Uh, They pass lie detector tests. They're missing from the natural environment. Uh, They uh, have patterned bruises on their bodies, Uh, There is some physical evidence, such as what my aunt has presented, and uh, 
It is fleeting. It's difficult to acquire, but there is some, and it causes me to believe that uh, their statements are credible. Kathleen Marden and Denise Stoner, The Alien Abduction Files. Thank you to you both. I wish we had more time. Thank you. It was a pleasure being with you. Thank you. Tim Spreen, thank you for your capable work behind the board. And, uh, of course, back next week with uh, a great show for you. I hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.